it was my great fortune to catch Mr. Mike Coyne Logan. He was on his way to Cincinnati and then over to Memphis, Tennessee, getting ready for another river cleanup, and this on the Mississippi River in the Memphis, Tennessee region. Mike is with Living Lands and Water. This is a nonprofit that does outstanding work bringing together volunteers, technology, and people of great and generous hearts. I'm bringing an important story, and it's an important story because it intersects with modern life, youth, industry, ecology. It slices through all of those areas, and it is built on such simple and energetic ideas. It's just a profoundly important story. So we will be listening to Mike Coyne Logan talk about living lands and water. What was the the draw? How did you discover this great opportunity? I had a friend who had started interning with Chad. And I thought it was really awesome what they were doing and started to volunteer with the organization in its early stages and really kind of connected with Chad and his personality, but also the mission and, and love the fact that it was tangible and it wasn't just people talking, but actually going out and actually doing something physical, which I really, I really love about it. Just the, you know, the physical aspect of the job and the tangible aspect of the job. And so I started volunteering and then Chad asked me if I want to come on board in 2007. You mentioned the physical challenges of the work. Let's describe that a little bit because I'm assuming that a good bit of your work is on a barge and a lot of it might be in the muck and who knows where the rest of it is. Let's discuss that a little bit. Yeah, so the the majority of the stuff that we get is is stuff that gets flooded up to islands along the river, shorelines, and shallow water. So, you know, some of it's, you know, light, you get a lot of lighter, you know, single use plastic. Then you get a lot of so many things, you know, they get the smallest crack in them from a deter a plastic detergent bottle to a 55 gallon barrel. And then they get filled with mud or tires that get, you know, filled with mud and, and just trying to, you know, dig those things out and, and then uh, load them into to boats, John boats with with just the crew ourselves, a pretty small crew. It fluctuates between seven and 10 crew members full time and then with the help of volunteers. So that's part of the process. And then more recently, we've, with the help of John Deere, got an excavator that they donated and it allows us to get bigger items more frequently and items we used to not be able to get before. Um, and we just kind of like nose up with our barges to to pick up. Last year we or this year, we pulled three cars, I think over a dozen. I could look at the stats for you, but over a dozen, you know, just boats from small aluminum plate boats to, to bigger houseboats, other items that before just were just unable, were unable to get without that kind of heavy equipment. So let's consider the John boat. You, you bring up several John boats. What's the recycling? It's really cool to see since I've started just how much more we recycle than even in the beginning. We, we went from basically just recycling a lot of our tires and scrap metal to some of the plastic and aluminum before to now we'll hold events where we we sort through the bags with volunteers and work with different waste and recycling facilities to sort out the recyclables from those bags after we collect them. But we also have a system now where the barrels and buckets that we used to just landfill, we separate those out of our barge to to be repurposed and recycled as well. And then like e-waste, we separate 
uh, any hazardous materials as well, like waste oil. Uh, we want to make sure that gets properly disposed of. But it's cool to see the evolution of just how much we we now recycle opposed to when I first started and just always constantly trying to get better when it comes to that. That's kind of that process. Bridgestone takes our tires for free, uh, along with uh, some of it goes to the Scott County Waste, too. They, they have a shredder, that so those tires can be repurposed for different uses. And then the scrap, obviously, that goes back. We, we sell that depending on the price of scrap. It, it goes into help operating costs. But How about that John boat? What happens to it? You, you pull it out, you put it up on a trailer, and where does it go after that? One of the the fun parts of this job is logistics, and it's trying to get our barges to different locations and work as kind of a base of operations that we live on, you know, seven, eight months out of the year. And then from those barges, we have John boats. We go out and we collect miles away from the barge to bring back to sort onto our barges. And we often bring trucks and trailers with us in case there's any issues with those John boats. We can pull those John boats out of the water, like if they have a hole. You know, we're, we're pulling out of shorelines in so many different locations, and, and we've got to get in close to get to this stuff uh, in shallow water. We're just not familiar with the waterways there. You know, you, you're full, you got a boat full of trash and scrape it up against, you know, a rocky bottom or hitting something. Over time, it starts to wear out the bottoms of those boats. So we need to have those trailers so we can bring those out. But we also have those trucks and trailers because often we'll do, you know, not often, but we'll do cleanups where we don't have our barges and we'll get, we have like a, we just recently got a, a giant dump truck we call Mutt. It's pretty cool. It's like an old 76 grain truck that we've got this guy that's just mechanical MacGyver that's he like swapped engines in and everything. He's he's the guy's amazing, but that we can take the cleanups and then take back the stuff that we collect from these other cleanups when we're not working near the barge. Or in some cases we we get dumpsters. We'll sometimes have a cleanup going on, like let's say the Illinois River and our barge is on the Ohio and the crew's doing part of the cruise and on the Illinois River doing a cleanup and the other part of the cruise on the Ohio rivers. There's a, there, there's a lot going on and we do a lot. I feel like we do a lot for how small our crew is. Okay. I know that Chad began on the Mississippi river and you've mentioned the Illinois and the Ohio name two other rivers. But, uh, the Tennessee river. We've been doing a lot of work on, on that river. Um, that flows from Knoxville down to, you know, all the way down to Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and then comes back up North to Paducah where it enters into the Ohio. A lot of work on that. We've done some work on the Missouri, the Wisconsin, the Cedar, the Cedar River. Uh, sorry, I could keep going on and on, but you know, doing some a lot of flood relief after the flooding in two thousand seven or eight in Cedar Rapids, record floods. We we did a lot of relief work there as so much debris was flooded into that river. Also in Wisconsin in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, uh, when Lake Delton the dam broke there, we we worked to to remove just the debris that came in from. From houses and even how entire houses themselves, we help remove. Um, it's pretty shallow, the Wisconsin River, so the, the houses kind of got broke up, or we broke them down to get the get those materials out of that river. So those are some other rivers: the Delaware River, the East River in New York, Delaware River in Philadelphia. So it's been a, been a lot of different places that we worked over the years. Yeah, and as an aside, I remember, and and of course your interest in history, I think you'll enjoy this little anecdote. Quite a few years ago, during the Cold War, there was a captain of an American submarine who remembered something that he had seen as a child on the Mississippi River. He remembered the signs on both sides of the shore indicating that cables had been buried. And it occurred to him that if he could get up into some of the rivers up near Vladivostok, Russia, 
he might discover the same kinds of signage. Now, Vladivostok is, I think, about eight time zones away from Moscow, so the communication probably isn't going to be radio waves, but it's going to be subterranean cable. Finds these, this captain, he goes back, gets permission to have a hole cut out at the bottom of his submarine, and to get two deep-sea divers, he goes back up, drops them in, they find the cables, and they have a to splice into it, and we listen to all the Soviet. Oh, wow. That's that's crazy. Yeah, isn't that something? Cool. I love those little cool tidbits of, of history. That, that That's the problem with me. I love of history. You, you go down so many rabbit holes of cool information. The drama. You folks must sometimes find yourself caught up in some currents on the river that you didn't expect. The biggest thing is we're real adamant about safety, obviously. It depends where you're at, right, as far as currents go, or it depends on the stages of the water. And we'll cancel events with volunteers, but sometimes we'll work on higher waters as a crew. But we're, we're strategic in where we work during those high waters. There's a big difference between working on high water on the Illinois River where there's a series of locks and dams versus like high water below St. Louis. where the, And it's a bigger river with more water, bigger currents, bigger eddies and, and boils. And that all plays into where we're at, what we're doing. So, so that's a part of, you know, big, you know, storms sometimes coming through and just being, being wary of that, being on the water and being the river. But not to, not to downplay the danger because it can be very dangerous. I think sometimes it's cool when it is high water in certain locations where you can you can get back into the woods and literally with these boats and kind of maneuver. And then I like it too because you can pick stuff that floats. You know, these tires, refrigerators, things, a lot of this stuff floats. And in a way, it's easier instead of have to, when the water's down, having to walk stuff out. Because the floodplains are pretty wide, especially on the Mississippi. And as you get lower on the Mississippi, stuff can get flooded back, you know, miles back into to woodlands. So instead of have to walk that stuff far out to a shoreline, to a boat, when you get back up in these woods with these boats, it's it's, it's kind of fun. It's kind of adventurous. But the biggest thing there is you got to be conscious of, of dead trees and as they call them widow makers. You don't want to bang into a, a dead tree that can then fall down on your boat. And it's like I said, it depends on where you're at. The size of the river, the location of the river, the Mississippi and the Quad Cities or Rock Island Moline is a lot different than it is, like I said, in St. Louis or, or Memphis. Right, which is which is interesting that a river because it is interesting. Like the Tennessee goes from north to south and then back north again. Yeah, the Tennessee basically flows north, doesn't it? Well, it, no, it flows. It flows from Knoxville, Tennessee, south all the way down to like Alabama, and then back up north to Paducah, Kentucky, where it ends on the Ohio. And well, that's that's a pretty crazy route. Yeah, yeah, it, it's I, it fascinates me because I most rivers flow one direct north or south you know just in one direction but one time chad was up there working and we he found the remains of a human remains of a body up there while we're working in shanahan um not too far from joliet oh have you guys found the yellow submarine yet (laughs) no we have not found the yellow submarine well keep up the good work it's out there somewhere (laughs) right right no i have not found the yellow submarine you be sure and tell Chad I'm interested in that. But Chad discovered this work. What was his start like? So Chad grew up, his parents lived right along the Mississippi River in a, s- a smaller town just outside of the Quad Cities or East Moline, Illinois, in, in, in Hampton, Illinois. 
And he spent a lot of time just literally his parents' house was the river was his backyard. So he spent a lot of time just playing, fishing, and working on the river. And he worked as a commercial shell diver or diving for mussels with his older brother. Kind of wanted to do what his older brother was doing. And they would camp on islands and they would dive on the bottom of the river, um, filling around for for mussel shells, which at the time they were harvesting for what was known as the cultured pearl industry, where you would take mussels to then be uh, harvested and they would take pieces of these mussels to inject in oysters overseas. I believe in like Japan where they had, had developed this process. They could, by injecting pieces of these shells into other oysters, it would make them produce a pearl every time. Harvesting of the mussel is something that's centrally important to another episode I've got. That's the Muscatine Museum. And I think at one time, Muscatine was responsible for nearly a billion buttons being manufactured. Yeah, I'm, I'm, that, that sounds correct. I mean, you can still, just last year, working down in the Muscatine area and just above it, and there's still remains of, of shells that have been holes punched out of them for the, for the pearl button industry, which was originally why mussels were harvested. But then with the invention of plastic, that whole industry kind of fell to the wayside. And, and, that, and then Chad, like I said, at the time when he was doing it, like the, the late 80s, I want to say early 90s, was harvesting for this, for this cultural pearl industry. Pearls do occur naturally, and obviously they're more expensive, and but just really rare to find a, a mussel with a, a pearl that occurs naturally inside of it. But, you know, all this time that he spent out there doing that work, he noticed all the trash on the islands that he camped and worked and, and wanted to do something about it. So at a young age, he started to, to make calls to officials in the state government asking for funding, and they all kind of told him no for a variety of different reasons. Some kind of reluctant because of his age to give funding to take on such a huge task as cleaning up the Mississippi River. But this was obviously something that he was very connected to, something he was very passionate to, was very genuine and, and kept this idea alive in his head. And, and his buddies in college had just like randomly had like a NASCAR race. And, he, and from that, he took the idea that they have sponsors that are companies and he thought maybe companies would be willing to sponsor him to start cleaning up the river, took that idea. And finally, you know, after a lot of other companies tell him, no, he got one sponsor early on, um, they gave just the $8,400 grant for him to start cleaning up by himself. And just one, his own personal John Bo, picking up trash. And it got some local news attention through the paper and then through the paper, more national media attention and kind of brought to light how important and how necessary this work was and was able to gather more funding. And he's just the thing about Chad is he's the guy with a million ideas that also tries to follow through on all those ideas and just keeps pushing. And like if he sees something he wants to accomplish, he's going to try to figure out a million different ways to try to get it done. 1998 was the actual forming of the nonprofit it was in high school. So like you're, you're talking like 94, 95. I mean, early on, he was staging trash in his parents' backyard when they were on vacation because, you know, that was one of the biggest challenges is trying to figure out where to put all this trash. He was collecting. It took up so much of his time logistically. Trash barges in New York were they had nowhere to put this trash and just how much attention that brought. And he thought, that's what I need. I need barges to store this stuff so that I can offload it less throughout the year. But also to, to highlight to people in the different communities when he'd come in with these barges to show he's such a, a big, you know, it showcases, wow, that it, it tells people, man, this, you know, let people know this all came from the river. And when you see it all in one spot, it, it's pretty eye-opening. The number of volunteers and volunteer hours must be very large. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, I believe it's over 120,000 volunteers that we worked with. And I think that's maybe one of Chad's most valuable assets is the ability to energize people and, and to get people to work together for, you know, this cause of cleaning up the river. And I, just the way, he, you know, he's just, first of all, he's just a fun guy to be around. He tries to get everybody involved. He, there, there's a lot of people, you can, 
I mean, people have obviously been trying to do cleanups and, and still doing cleanups and doing a lot of good work, but but oftentimes preach to the choir. And he's very good at making things fun and, and creating that atmosphere of it's hard work, so let's try to make it as fun as possible. But getting people of all different backgrounds, all different political spectrums together just to come together for the cause of trying to clean up the river. And and that's one of the, the coolest things that I think I've learned from him working with him is it's such a great starting point. When you get people to work together and do physical work, it can break down so many barriers that that often I think people have. And I think that's a really cool thing to see with this job. We're all about working together with people and not trying to work against them and other different river, smaller river cleanup organizations trying to help them and, and encourage them to, you know, take ownership of their own stretch of river and, and people in their communities take ownership of their own stretch of river. But the Audubon Society, I know we've done work with Sierra Club with doing a restoration of an island and starve rock with the Ottoman society, cleaning it up, cleaning trash off that island on the Illinois River, and then also doing some planting of trees out on this island that had been like these developers came in to try to develop this island to build in like condominiums. And a group I want to say from the Ottoman society kind of stopped, and then we kind of worked together with them to do some restoration work there. I suppose crazy Asian carp. They're they're thick, and I mean I've been hit in the head several times by by those things. Where, and I mean they're even. In parts of the Mississippi, you'll see them too as well. Even small stretches of Ohio. Yeah, Illinois is where they can, they can get as thick as, as anywhere. And uh, we know a lot of guys, including Chad's brother himself, working with the state to to fish out a lot of those those carp. And we know commercial fishermen that sell fish like catfish and buffalo that they, they harvest from the river to be sold in markets. And, and also, in some cases, harvesting these carp that originated. Um, and the ones that you know you see jumping, those are the silver carp specifically is their name. And then there's big head. There's a, there's a variety of different carp species, but the ones that are known for jumping and you'll see like viral videos about those are, are silver carp. But uh, yeah, just working with the state, I know to try to keep, you know, they put up that electronic barrier in the Chicago river, but also a lot of commercial fishermen uh, harvesting those fish and, and trying to create markets for those fish to be sold in. And I know there's a lot of different work that's been done as, as far as, uh, as carbs gone, as far as, uh, I want to say like, you know, making it into cat food or dog food potentially, but also I know they're not really a bad tasting f- uh, fish. It's, 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 it's really a cultural thing and they can be bony, but if you know how to cook them properly, I've, I've had carp. They're a white fish that they're not bad. It's just this cultural stigma that carp carries with them and just kind of the difficulty in, in trying to prepare them properly. You encourage the listeners to do. I think the biggest thing listeners should be, the biggest thing that we see is just the amount of, of waste, particularly plastic that gets you know used for a short period of time and disposed of and thrown away. And then unfortunately, a lot of times some of this waste ends up in our waterways and then through our waterways and our rivers and through in our oceans and the, and the dilemmas that that causes. And, you know, this is something we're obviously really conscious of because we see firsthand all the, the single use straws to single use bottles, plastic bottles to all the things that come in plastic. And for example, let's start with bottle bottle water. Maybe the biggest sham since since pet rocks. A lot of times no cleaner than the water from your tap. You spend a lot more money for this bottle water. It essentially is purification process for that that bottle water it comes from government entities or municipalities, which then they take that tap water and they maybe send it through another filter, put it in a plastic bottle and then sell it to you for 250 to 10,000 times the cost. And then you have this plastic waste. And I've read studies through consumer reports that people that just drink bottled water consume about, say it was like 86,000 more microplastics a year. And that's the other thing with all these plastics being out there, the chemicals that are in these plastics that, you know, in in, in containers that we drink out of or, or use are getting into our systems as well. 
and also into the food chain, into fish. They estimate that every minute that there is a, a garbage truck worth of plastics that are entering our oceans worldwide, and 90% of those plastics are starting from our rivers. But before that, it's just litter in our communities. And it's a lot of this stuff that we can we really could get by without using to begin with. Thinking about closing that loop, you know, repurposing the materials we use or using stuff that's biodegradable. I think people will look back 50 years from now and or hopefully even sooner, but say, what the heck were they thinking? 